listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to astronomer royal Lord Martin Rees. This is the first century when human beings, one species, are sufficiently empowered that they can determine the future of the entire planet and the entire biosphere. Martin shared his insights into the existential threats facing humanity, what it means to be a techno-optimist, and how we can plan for the long-term future. This episode is an edited version of a recent live stream event. You can view the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Now, according to Lord Martin Rees, humanity has reached a critical juncture. During the next century, we are likely to face a number of existential threats from cyber attacks, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and climate change. Surviving these scenarios will depend on our collective ability to adapt to new ideas and to plan accordingly for tomorrow. In his recent book, On the Future, he outlines some of the ways we might leverage science to solve our greatest problems whilst avoiding the dystopian risks. To do this, we must learn to think rationally, globally, and optimistically about the future. So Martin, I want to kick off by asking, what is so special about this century? Well, Luke, first, thank you very much for having me on your show. And uh, I'll try and not be too unredeemably gloomy and say some cheerful things during the time. To answer your question, this century is special, even to an astronomer who is aware that the Earth has been around for 45 million centuries. This is still a special century because it's the first of those 45 million when one species, namely the human species, has the power to determine the future of the planet. And this is for a number of reasons. Firstly, uh, there are more of us. The population is far higher than it ever was. And secondly, we are more interconnected. So if something goes wrong in one part of the world, it may spread globally. And that's certainly what we are seeing with COVID-19 at the moment. But thirdly, uh, we are empowered by technology. So that even a few people have the power to cause massive disruption by cyber and bio attacks. So Firstly, the environmental effect of uh, so many people on the planet. Uh, Secondly, cascading globally because we're so interconnected. And thirdly, the empowerment of even small groups by these new technologies. Well, you describe yourself, Martin, as a techno-optimist, but a political pessimist. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm a technical optimist because, of course, uh, uh, we know how wonderful these technologies are. Uh, they've made everyone in the world healthier, living longer, reduced infant mortality, and all these things, and um, enriched our lives in amazing ways. And certainly, the population of the world now, which is about 7.8 billion, couldn't all be fed had we not developed far better technology and better agriculture over the last 50 years. So certainly, it's very positive that we have these developments. But uh, the problem is that they can be misused. The stakes get higher because of these technologies being so powerful. As far as the population is concerned, we are in nation states which compete with each other. And if we want to avoid the downsides, well, let's take climate change, for example. Uh, We all know that if we go as we are now, there will be dangerous climate change in the second half of the century. And we've got to do something about it. Everyone knows this, but it's very hard to get politicians 
to take actions now when the benefit accrues mainly to people in remote parts of the world decades ahead. They've got an urgent agenda. They care about getting votes in the next election, etc. So when I say I'm a political pessimist, it's because nation states don't agree. And also that politicians tend to think short term. Those are the two main worries I have. Now, in the book, you focus on some very specific technologies. You look at biotechnology, cyber technology and artificial uh, intelligence. Why do you focus so heavily on these particular novel technologies? Well, I think they are the most qualitatively new and fast moving technologies. Um, And uh, when you say bio, that includes a a lot of things. It includes uh, viruses. It also includes uh, uh, genetic modification, plant breeding and things like that. So bio is a very broad category and um, AI and artificial intelligence, that's also very broad. Um, and um, that messes into cyber. But also um, I do discuss environmental issues because uh, we are, as I said, for the first time, numerous enough and empowered enough to actually change the whole global environment. And uh, cause mass extinctions, cause drastic climate change, etc. Now, the book spends a lot of time looking at this thing called existential threats, and, and it would be quite easy to spend this entire podcast outlining the multitude of misfortunes that humanity might potentially face. But I want to look more broadly at this concept of risk, because you're very careful to differentiate between this idea of existential threats and extreme risks. So why is it often better to talk about extreme rather than existential risks? Well, I think existential has the connotations of something that's going to uh, wipe ourselves out completely. And it's very hard to think of any kind of catastrophe that would wipe out every human being. There are some that could, they're not the likely ones. Um, So I think it's better to talk about extreme risks. And so in my book, I don't say much about the uh, rather rare scenarios that could wipe everyone out. But I do discuss the kind of scenarios which could be set back to civilization. And if you ask me for my uh, prognosis, is that we will have a bumpy ride through this century because there will be uh, episodes where a few people cause uh, something like a massive cyber attack or an engineered pandemic, which cascades globally, or we will create very severe climate change, and these will be setbacks to civilization. So I think we have a bumpy ride, and I prefer to use the word extreme threats because that doesn't mean we have to imagine everyone being wiped out. We have to imagine simply that there will be an end to the steady progress that we got used to. And uh, one of my main themes is that uh, we shouldn't be complacent and we should worry about events which haven't yet happened but which would be so serious that even one occurrence is too many. There's a very good mantra, uh, which I like to quote, which is the unfamiliar is not the same as the improbable. And that's to, for instance, of pandemics. The pandemic is is a good example, and, and perhaps we'll get to that a little bit later. But I do want to touch upon this idea of risk, because when we talk about this idea of 
existential risks. Existential risk can be seen as a collective noun. It can describe a multitude of things that could potentially happen. But risks can also be used as a as a verb, certain things that are worth doing. And as you say in the book, any innovation is initially risky. But if we don't take risks as humanity, we might end up forgoing certain benefits. So you personally, what risks do you believe might be worth actually taking to ensure the survival of humanity? Well, I mean, I, I think um, everyday life is risky and doing anything does cause risks. <laughs> but if you think of technology, uh, then, of course, there is a lot of debate about the risk of new biotech, for instance. Let's take, for instance, genetically modified crops, GM crops. This is a case where many people regard this as too risky. And I think uh, they're being ultra cautious. Mainland Europe has uh, laws which uh, don't allow GM crops, whereas in the United States, uh, they are allowed. I think that if we want to ensure we can feed the world by climate change, we're going to need GM crops. Point here is that some people take what's called the precautionary principle too far and say that we really shouldn't do anything for the first time because there may be some uh, unenvisioned downside. And there's something in that. We've got to be cautious. But I think we can't take it too far. And in the context of GM crops, we know, for instance, that there are 300 million people in North America who've done a big control experiment. They've eaten this stuff for 20 years or so with no manifest downside. So I thought we could be fairly sure there'd been a catastrophe from GM crops. And so I think the EU regulations on that are too cautious. And so there is a trade-off, but we've sometimes got to do things for the first time. But one thing I would say is that if something is going to be done which is new and where there are conceivable downsides, it's very important that the decision to uh, go ahead should be the outcome of broad discussion. Uh, What naturally would worry people would be if a few scientists tried to assure the politicians that this thing was quite safe and they should go ahead. There's got to be proper discussion so that disinterested views can prevail and decide if the uh, risk is small enough to be worth taking in order to get a manifest benefit. I mean, sometimes regardless of the risks, the actual scientific risks, some things can just receive bad PR. And the GM crop example that you gave is a very good example. That There seems to be so many hidden costs of just outright saying no. How do you think we collectively take a more proactionary as opposed to precautionary approach to engineering our way out of any potential threats? Well, what went wrong with the GM debate in the UK uh, was that there was a standoff that developed between Monsanto, which of course handled things very insensitively, and uh, environmental campaigners. This standoff had developed and commercial interests had got involved before the public was really aware that there was a debate. There should have been uh, engagement between industry and science and politicians early on. To take a- another example where things went better, the UK has uh, guidelines for research on human embryos that up to 14 days is okay, but not after that. And uh, these uh, guidelines have been followed by most other countries. And they were developed in the 1980s by a committee chaired by Mary Warnock, a philosopher. And she and her committee engaged with parliamentarians and with the public and with ethicists and religious leaders and all that, and tried to get a sort of consensus. And that's the way things should be done. And that's a model for how we should deal with any major innovation. Mm. And as I say, it wasn't done with GM crops. 
it was done for embryos. And of course, one issue now um, is AI and uh, whether there are any uses of AI which, uh, if not dangerous, are unethical. Here again, uh, there needs to be some public discussion to avoid, uh, in this case, not a government, but some uh, multinational conglomerate uh, getting too much uh, power. When I think about balancing risk and reward, I always think of nuclear energy. And I know you've been heavily involved for many years in the, in the nuclear discussion. And recently, we've seen this rise of something called eco-modernism, the eco-modernist approach to energy, where basically they make a compelling argument that nuclear creates the greatest yield of energy with the least amount of waste. Obviously, that, that small amount of waste is a very dangerous amount of waste. And they basically argue that this is worth doing despite the risks involved with nuclear reactors. Are, are you sympathetic to that approach? Yes, I am. And I think that's a very good example because uh, uh, we know that uh, nuclear energy is risky. We know about Chernobyl and all that. Uh, I think the risks have been exaggerated because the number of people killed by uh, radiation dosages from leakages is very small. So I think there's an exaggerated response to, uh, for instance, the Fukushima disaster in Japan. But certainly there are dangers. We should worry about uh, um, nuclear power stations spreading worldwide because of the risks of things like Fukushima. And also, of course, because of the uh, linkage with um, nuclear weapons uh, proliferation, um, unless we have a very powerful international body to uh, control the uh, enrichment of uranium, etc. I do think myself that when we think of how we're going to provide energy for the world in a way that doesn't produce carbon dioxide, we're going to make a lot of use of wind and solar energy and one or two niche sources of energy like tidal power around the UK, things of that kind. We do, of course, need some base load when there's no wind and no sun. And uh, we can have storage in batteries or in hydrogen, for instance. But of course, the most obvious base load which is carbon-free, would be nuclear. And I personally think that we should, in this country and many other countries, go for nuclear. But we should, before any mass production of nuclear reactors, we should do more R&D into so-called fourth-generation reactors. Because the problem is that the nuclear power stations, which exist now, some are very old, and they're all based on 1960s technology. There's been very little R&D, new ideas, but there are lots of possible new designs, including what are called small modular reactors, which can be flexible, can be made in a factory and then moved on the back of a lorry to the locations and things like that. But I certainly think that as part of the energy mix, we ought to have R&D into these forms of uh, fission energy, uh, which are cleaner and safer uh, than the ones on which the existing nuclear power stations depend. And of course, I think we should uh, spend up to uh, several billion dollars a year, in my view, on fusion, because that's a long way away, perhaps. Uh, But in the context of energy, which the world is spending five trillion dollars a year on or thereabouts, we should surely be spending a few billion dollars a year on uh, ways of exploring how fusion energy could actually work. 
Now, to look at an example closer to home about how we balance this idea of risk and reward, I think to COVID-19. And and I look at the UK's originally proposed idea of herd immunity as a way to combat COVID-19. Do you think this was an example of one of those risks worth taking? Or is that a very problematic approach to something like a like a pandemic? Well, I think uh, you're quite right in saying that uh Obviously, there is a balance between uh, ensuring that the number of fatalities stays low and uh, avoiding shutting down uh, the entire economy and everyday life. There's clearly a balance. And right from the start, um, those in charge were trying to strike this balance. But of course, right at the beginning, they uh, were in the dark regarding how rapidly it would spread and how it spread most effectively, etc., and uh, uh, that's why I think we should be a bit indulgent and shouldn't blame them too much, because in retrospect, they didn't get everything right. Uh, but of course, now, when uh, fortunately it's uh, uh, in decline at the moment in this country, we've got to the stage when we are considering a trade-off. We're saying that uh, we could keep people locked down for longer, um, but it, that would be very bad for the economy. And more seriously, it would be very bad for children if they can't go back to school and uh, have a sort of constrained environment for longer. So I think the government's probably doing the right thing uh, in in this. And um, let's just hope that uh, they are proved in retrospect to have made the right judgment, balancing risks and benefits. And and, and there there are other examples. There was um, so-called mad cow disease um, about 25 years ago, which was a completely unknown disease. And um, some, some people thought it might be a major pandemic. In fact, it wasn't. Uh, what happened then was that the uh, um, government a bit o- overreacted. Uh, but that was understandable because they couldn't rule out it being a disease that killed hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, it only killed 100 people. But uh, at the time when they had to make a decision, the government said we shouldn't eat beef on the bone and things like that, which was overcautious. But when people didn't know, uh, then I think it was right to be cautious. That was a case when the precautionary principle was applied probably realistically because we didn't know. I want to turn to one of the figures that appears quite dominantly in your book, and that is the character of the post-human. What is the post-human, and and what do you think a post-human existence might actually look like? (laughs) Well, this is taking us uh, beyond this century and towards science fiction, of course. But uh, one uh, of the um, new technologies, which we haven't mentioned much yet, is, of course, genetics um, and uh, gene modification and all that, CRISPR-Cas9 and and all these things, uh, which uh, can be used not just to change plants, not just to uh, remove the propensity to Huntington's disease, but eventually perhaps to make more drastic changes. It's not easy because most of the characteristics of humans like the way they look and intelligence, etc., are combinations of um, maybe 10,000 genes. They're not a single gene like what gives you Huntington's disease. And therefore, we can't, if we wanted to, redesign humans. We could only do that when two things happen, which are both a long way in the future. One is being able to analyze enough genomes using AI to decide which combination of genes is optimum for a particular characteristic. And secondly, having decided that, being able to synthesize a genome with those qualities. And those are both a long way away. And of course, it'll raise ethical issues whether we can do that.
Another related thing that people talk about is whether we can um, enhance humans, not by genetics, but by somehow plugging in some extra memory to our brain, a sort of uh, memory store, uh, which, which is electronic. This is talked about, and um, Elon Musk has this scheme to plug thousands of electrodes into your brain, etc. So this has been talked about. Um, and of course, uh, science fiction writers think that this may happen. If you ask me my view, I would hope that these techniques will be pretty heavily regulated, both prudential grounds, because they will have downsides, and also um, on ethical grounds. I think it would be a new and fundamental kind of inequality if some people were able to enhance themselves genetically. But if I can digress into my favorite subject, which is space, then I think if we look beyond the Earth, then this does become realistic, because if I could digress a bit into space, um, then we, we know that uh, humans have been to the moon, etc. Um, and um, I think by the end of a century, there will be some people establishing a little colony on Mars. I don't think there'll be mass emigration, uh, because uh, there's nowhere in our solar system as comfortable as even the South Pole or the top of Everest. So uh, I certainly don't agree with Elon Musk and my late colleague, Stephen Hawking, that we should have mass emigration to Mars. Uh, no one wants to go. Um, and uh, dealing with climate change on Earth is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars to make it habitable. So mass emigration is off. But on the other hand, I think that there will be some people who will go to, to Mars. And I think there'll be funded not by governments, because governments are risk averse when they're controlling the lives of civilian astronauts. So that makes anything they do expensive. But I think these are private companies like um, Elon Musk, SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. These companies are going to be able to take high risk by launching adventurers into space, even if there's a 10 or 20 percent chance of failure. Do you think it'll be humans? I mean, we, the, what gives us the original definition of the cyborg is the essay by Kleins and Klein, where they were looking at what we'd need to do to the human body in order to survive an extraterrestrial environment. And they were talking quite specifically about space, redesigning the body for a new environment. But do you think it's actually going to be our biological body as it is evolved here on Earth that's going to go to space? Or do you think we're closer to sending perhaps robots yes. that we can later use as avatars and what we'll end up doing is not sending our physical bodies into space, but we'll end up sending our minds. We'll communicate with these robotic avatars and control them and get the experience of being on this other planet, but our physical body can stay here on terra firma. Yes, well, I mean, that's one scenario, but uh, what I would say is that supposing a few crazy pioneers form a little colony on Mars and they have one-way tickets or they have to settle there, okay, uh, then they will find themselves ill-adapted to living on Mars because we're adapted as humans to live on the Earth, but it's very different. And so they will have every incentive to use these techniques, which will indeed be genetic modification, and perhaps also, as you say, cyborg modification, to adapt to this hostile environment. And they'll be away from the regulators, who I hope are going to constrain uh, this being done here on Earth. And so within a century or two, then there will be these people on Mars who will be very different from us. Um, and uh, as you say, it could be that they will um, download themselves into robots or there will be robots of intelligence, at least comparable to humans. And then those robots or those electronic descendants of human beings 
they won't want an atmosphere. They may prefer zero G, so they will go into space. And if they're electronic, they'll be near immortal. So an interstellar voyage won't be daunting to them. Uh, so that's a scenario for the far future, I think, that uh, um, there will be electronic entities um, which will spread through the solar system and beyond. And I think uh, although we want to, in my view, go slow on modifying human beings on the Earth, it probably will happen. And one thing I say in my book, which I find a slightly sad and scary thought, is that uh, the one thing that hasn't changed over several millennia is human nature. And that's the reason why we can read classical literature and the Old Testament and all that and admire the artifacts left by the Greeks and Romans and their literature and feel an affinity with them. Because human nature is the same now as it was for them. But I think there's perhaps a rather low chance that whatever the dominant entities say 500 years from now will have any affinity with us. They may have some algorithmic understanding of how we behaved, but uh, they may be much more different from us than we were from the Romans and Greeks. Well, if, if climate change goes the way that most are expecting, the Earth might be so inhospitable anyway that living on Mars might actually be the better option. Well, Mars might be even worse, but I think to go back to climate change, I think we it really is important that we do think uh, long term enough to do something about it before it gets serious, because the situation is that uh, there's a huge debate about the details of climate change, but most people agree there's a serious threat that by the end of a century, we'll have crossed tipping points, which will lead to uh, very severe changes in the entire global climate. And it's worth paying an insurance premium now in order to avoid that. And uh, the trouble is that some people aren't prepared to pay that insurance premium. And those who aren't prepared to do it are people like Born Lomberg, um, the um, environmental campaigner from Denmark. He's a bogeyman among some environmentalists, but it's slightly unfair because he doesn't contest the science. What he does, though, is he uh, has a, a group of economists and they apply quite a heavy discount rates to future benefits and future disbenefits. And for that reason, he um, downplays the priority of doing things that will make the climate safer in the second half of the century compared to more immediate ways of helping the world's poor. But uh, the, the ethics of uh, applying a discount rate in this context um, is very dubious because uh, most of us would say, and this is the conventional view that leads to uh, policy on climate change, is that um, you shouldn't discriminate on grounds of date of birth. You should care about the uh, life chances of a baby born today who will still be alive in the 22nd century. You shouldn't apply a 3.5% discount rate, which means that you don't care about what happens after 2050. The problem is to get public agreement um, to uh, policies uh, which do, in effect, provide this insurance that things won't get catastrophically bad later in the century. Well, let's talk about one of the tipping points that features quite heavily in the book and that, that you've spoken about a lot, which is this idea of population growth and the fear around population growth, because you have a very nuanced perspective on the possibility of this idea that the population is going to grow to an unsustainable rate. And you go as far as saying it's impossible to define an optimum population or the world's ideal carrying capacity. And then you have very specific reasons for that. I just wonder if you could explain your position on, on population growth. Well, I mean, first, the world's population has doubled 
in the last 50 years, from about three and a half million billion in the 1960s to 7.8 billion now. But the projections are that it's leveling off. And in fact, the uh, global birth rate has actually declined over the last few years. But even though that's the case, the population is destined almost certainly, barring a real catastrophe, to rise to about 9 billion by the middle of the century. And that's really for two reasons. Firstly, that the uh, so-called demographic transition hasn't happened in sub-Saharan Africa, so the population is still rising fast there. And secondly, people living longer. If you've got a histogram of the uh, number of people of different ages, then uh, uh, for Western Europe, there are roughly equal numbers in every decade of age up to 70. Whereas if you do this for Africa, then the young, the under 20s, um, are about half the total population. And they're going to live longer. And so they're going to have two kids and that will push up the population. So nine billion by mid-century is almost inevitable. What happens after that is unpredictable. Population could go down or it could keep on going up if, say, sub-Saharan Africa continues to have large families. We don't know. But I think we shouldn't panic too much about nine billion by mid-century because, uh, as I say, we've managed to cope with um, a doubling of the population in 50 years. In the late 1960s, there were doom-laden forecasts by the Club of Rome and by people like Paul Ehrlich about mass starvation in the 70s and 80s, and they didn't happen. Food production managed to keep pace with population growth during that period. It's true there's still famines, but they're caused by uh, maldistribution and wars, not by overall shortages. And if we look ahead to 2050, uh, then I think especially if we use um, high density uh, agriculture, minimizing water use, etc., and GM technology, uh, we can feed 9 billion people. Um, but um, I think we'll have to eat less beef um, because if all those 9 billion um, had the diet of present day Americans, uh, that would lead to problems with um, global warming and land use, etc. So if we want to uh, ensure people can be fed without producing too much CO2 and without encroaching on natural forests anymore, then average diet has to change. But there is, to quote Gandhi, enough for everyone's need, if not for everyone's greed, and we can feed 9 billion people. So uh, I think there's no uh, reason for panic on that. But on the other hand, if you ask what's the optimum population for the world, uh, then it may be that it is less than 9 billion. And so maybe we should hope that the population uh, does start to fall after 2050. And there are some scenarios where it does, because the population is already falling in um, Western Europe and Japan and places like that. Maybe we should hope that that happens in the future. Well, you say in the book, it's, it's not really quantity that's the issue. It's it's quality right. of these lives, because what's more dangerous than overpopulation is this idea of perceived inequality, as you call it in the book, global in. Bitterment. And why is that even a greater threat than the idea of overpopulation? And, and if it is such a threat, how can we go about tackling it? Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, as I say, nine billion can be fed, but uh, it's not clear they will be because that does uh, depend on proper distribution. But I think one, one big concern, as I briefly mentioned, is what happens in Africa if the um, population of um, sub-Saharan Africa um, goes on growing, if for cultural reasons families remain large, then as in some of the UN projections, Africa's population would double again 
between 2050 and 2100, from 2 billion to 4 billion. And in that scenario, this is one of the UN projections, Nigeria would by 2100 have a population of 900 million, which is equal to Europe and North America added together. If they are still caught by the poverty trap, they'd be lagging behind the rest of the world. And this is indeed a recipe for maximum embitterment and um, would be unacceptable. And the reason it would be unacceptable is first, the contrast between the um, wealthy world and um, Africa would then be very large. We want to minimize it. But secondly, there are two reasons why um, the situation would be more bitter. First, the one thing that everyone would have in Africa is knowledge of the rest of the world. They will have internet, they will know what they're missing in a way that they didn't 100 years ago. So that's one thing. And secondly, they can't develop their economy in the way that the uh, East Asian tigers did, for instance, by um, cheap manufacturing, because with robotics, uh, manufacturing of that kind is being, uh, in the jargon, reshored back into prosperous countries. So uh, the, the countries of the Middle East and Africa, which uh, need economic development, they can't track what was done in um, Vietnam, Taiwan, and places like that. Um, and this means that, in my opinion, if you want to have a, a fairly peaceful world in the second half of the century, uh, then we've got to ensure that uh, Africa and other regions uh, don't lag behind. We need a mega version of the uh, Marshall Aid Plan, whereby the United States helped out Europe uh, 70 years ago after World War II. And I think it's um, going to be crucial uh, that the wealthy countries ensure that um, the poor countries in the South don't get left behind. We should do this and not just for altruistic reasons. Now, I, I want to turn to a discussion of, of nature and, and discuss the appropriate relationship that humanity should have with nature, because there's so much talk of tech and re-engineering the environment and finding uh, technological solutions to things like climate change. But should humanity actually look to nature as a collaborator rather than something that humanity should be seen to, to conquer? Is there a way in which we can enhance our understanding of nature and, and perhaps work with nature. Yes, and, and um, uh, this is why I was against any sort of drastic genetic modification of humans. And I think uh, we ought to ensure that we do preserve the uh, variety of nature. And um, it, this, this is not just because um, plants in the, in the uh, Amazon rainforest may genes that are useful to us, not just for other reasons of human benefit, but because the variety of the natural world, the amazing beauty of nature, is something which many of us feel has value in its own right, over and above its uh, importance for us as humans. And so we should preserve it. And of course, as you know, one of the consequences of uh, the growing human impact on the environment and potential climate change is going to be mass extinctions. And I quote in my book, The Great Harvard ecologist E.O. Wilson, who says that if humans' collective actions lead to mass extinctions, it's a sin that future generations will least forgive us for. And uh, I certainly uh, resonate with that view. I think we, we ought to preserve nature. For that reason, um, I think we ought to um, not take a science fiction picture when we completely change uh, our planet, completely uh, reform it. Maybe crazy people on Mars can do that out there. But we should leave things as they are. And I think that's what people want, because uh, if you think of uh, what wealthy people who have the choice do, they tend to like to have a 
a house with a big garden or park and things like that. They like to be among nature. And uh, I think uh, they also uh, like to um, have human beings to help and support them. And that's why in my book, um, I discuss the importance of not using robots to replace human beings as carers. People prefer to have a real human being for that. And that's the choice that rich people make, and we ought to make that possible for everyone. Um, so I think that we want to realize that as human beings, we have certain values and we value the natural world. We value other human beings and we don't want those things to change too fast. Again, would you agree with the sort of eco-modernist perspective that it is better to rewild the earth rather than re-engineer the environment? Because it feels like nature is one of those things that already works at a global scale. It, it works irrespective of geopolitical borders. And do you think that if we just handed back 50% of the earth to Mother Nature, that she would just sort out the rest? Well, we, we could, but it must be too romantic because, of course, um, I think many of us uh, cherish the British landscape which is very beautiful. But of course, that's in a sense artificial. 2,000 years ago, the uh, um, British landscape had a lot more forests, etc., and wasn't in many ways as beautiful as it is now. Uh, so I think um, it's not always the case that an artificial landscape is um, less good than natural landscape. I think we could say that uh, much of the British landscape, which uh, uh, many of us uh, appreciate, is in fact artificial. So uh, what we've got to ensure is that it is one which actually um, enhances nature rather than destroys it. To take it one step further, the nature was here long before us and it really understood the networks that were were required to allow for this planet to give rise to things like life. And do you think nature does a lot better job at understanding the intricate networks that allow for life to emerge rather than human beings? Do you think we're always going to be subservient to nature or always have a better understanding of, of this thing than us? Well, I think you're sounding well like James Lovelock and Gaia. <laughs> that's not such a bad uh, thing. <laughs> Indeed, that's right. And, uh, and of course, as, as he would say, that uh, um, the planet can look after itself. But uh, that doesn't mean that what will happen will be good for humans. And I think as humans, we're entitled to uh, consider um, our species and our survival, uh, which may not happen in some scenarios which are good for the rest of the natural world. Um, but we should, surely, have the... Uh, knowledge and empowerment now uh, to uh, create a habitat uh, which doesn't lead to massive extinctions and which is uh, something we could admire um, and uh, which doesn't destroy all the forests, etc. So I think we can have a symbiosis with nature which leaves space for human beings to, to nourish their, uh, their lives. Now, I want to turn to a theme that keeps coming up in this, this podcast, and it's the idea of the human subjective understanding of time and how that really impacts how we as collective humanity thinks about our future. Uh, but to start that off, I want to discuss your own relationship with time at, at both a human scale and a cosmic scale. And, and starting with that human scale, you've personally spent 78 years on this planet, and <laughs> I, I want to understand how, how that passage of time has, has impacted really impacted the way that you personally think about the future? Well, I mean, I, I think obviously um, if, if you get to your 70s, you do have a different perspective on life. You look back on all the mistakes, etc., and uh, uh, realise the extent to which uh, um, any good luck is pure luck. <sighs> this is why, incidentally, um, I've become uh, ever, ever more egalitarian in my views, because uh, 
as I've lived long enough to follow people's careers, I've realized more and more how their success in a sort of commercial or careerist way is almost uncorrelated with their ability or the importance of their work. And I've, I've just realized that more and more. Uh, that has made me even more committed to a more egalitarian world than we have in this country um, in the future. That, that's one thing. But of course, um, we, we've got to think on longer timescales than ourselves. One thing that we do as human beings is surely appreciate the heritage of centuries past. We benefit from what the Victorians did in their structure, and we ought to ensure that um, we leave for future generations not a depleted and uh, hostile planet, but one uh, which uh, uh, is at least as good as the one we inherited. I think so. We've got to think in terms of multi-generational uh, welfare. And incidentally, there's an uh, interesting apparent paradox here, which I discuss in my book. Uh, I talk about the cathedral builders. I go to Ely Cathedral, which is uh, only about 12 miles from where I live, um, and um, think of the people who built that about 800 years ago. They were people who, um, on the whole, had never travelled much beyond the fens. That was their world. They knew of nothing beyond Europe. They thought the world would only last about a thousand years. But nonetheless, they built a cathedral that wasn't finished in their lifetime and which still inspires us nearly a millennium later. In contrast, we don't think very much about leaving a legacy for future generations, even though our horizon is measured in billions of years and we have a global conception which they didn't have. And the reason for this, actually, and the reason is not so paradoxical, is that um, the uh, Middle Ages were an era of slow change. And so even though the people didn't expect that the world would last more than a thousand years, perhaps, they thought nonetheless that their children and their grandchildren would have lives rather like theirs. And they therefore appreciate the Finnish cathedral. So they were prepared to, uh, to plan long term. The problem now is that even though we're all aware, and astronomers in particular are aware of the uh, billions of years that lie ahead, we can't predict with confidence what things will be like 50 years from now, because change is so rapid. And some of us therefore take that as, as an excuse for not uh, ensuring that there is good life for people 50 years from now, because we don't quite know what we should do to ensure it. So the rapid change is something which makes long-term planning harder now than it was for the Middle Ages. Well, it does feel like this idea of cathedral thinking is beginning to re-emerge, especially under the climate movement, but it has a new neodulism. It's called intergenerational obligations. <laughs> you know, this idea that we have to consider the rights of those who aren't yet born, the, the possible people. I mean, how do we do that? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, ethically we should. And uh, we're saying that if, if we do that and if we care about the... Uh, life chance of a baby born today who'll be alive at the beginning of the 22nd century, um, then uh, we ought to um, be prepared to pay a big insurance premium to eliminate the probability of a serious climatic disaster by the end of a century and tipping points being crossed, etc. So um, I think we've got to do all we can to uh, reinstate long-term thinking, certainly, as you say, in the context of climate, uh, where if we do things wrong in the next 20 years, then um, future generations will curse us because 
it'll be too late for them to actually reverse uh, the global heating that will be happening then. Uh, so I think we, we do have to instill as far as we can and, and draw religions to help us uh, this long-term concern. And this is really a consequence of what I said at the beginning, which is that uh, this is the first century when human beings, one species, are sufficiently empowered that they can determine the future of the entire planet and the entire biosphere. We have a new responsibility. I wonder if there's something that we can learn from religion here, because I look at your accommodationist approach to religion, where although necessarily you don't necessarily believe in a god, you're, you're happy to engage with the, the culture of Christianity. And I wonder if, if religion had something uh, there. I wonder whether your accommodationist approach to religion is because you recognize religion's ability to garner some form of consensus when it comes to thinking about the future. In other words, uh, do you think we could all do with a little more faith? that we're going to make it through? Well, I think so. And I think the point about religion, I quote in my book, the papal encyclical, which was a big influence on the um, 2015 Paris Climate Conference, which got a consensus. And um, the papal encyclical, which was inspired by uh, the Papal Academy, uh, was important. And he got a standing ovation at the UN, and this had a big influence on his billion followers in uh, Latin America, Africa and East Asia. What everyone thinks of the Catholic Church and the many things that we may not support, there's no denying that its global reach, its long-term view, and its care for the world's poor. And so I think uh, the, the religions do remind us that we are just one generation of many, and they do instill uh, long-term thinking so that we don't discount the future in the way that uh, um, economists normally do. And they also make us perhaps... Uh, um, care about the rest of nature. I want to return to the, these concepts of time and and how our thinking about time really does affect our, our thinking about the future. And it, it feels like in the modern world today, we have this dominant narrative, this dominant concept of lineal time. And lineal time has really informed our, our modern understanding of progress, that lineal time, that, that there's the past, the present, and there's a potential future. That future, in the, in the case of lineal time, always feels like it's going to be better than today. And also lineal time really has informed our belief that there's an inevitability of an endpoint. <laughs> you know, the story has to end at, at some point. What do you think the effect of this concept of lineal time has had on our perception of how we think about the future? Well, I think they're two separate things. What One is we are lulled into complacency if we think that there'll be continuing improvements. Uh, there, there can be uh, steady improvements for a decade or two or more, and then some sudden c- catastrophe. We know the mini versions of this in the stock market, where it goes up for 10 or 20 years and then sudden decline. And uh, we have disasters like the present uh, pandemic, which are set back by a few years. So we've got to, to re- realize that there are these the setbacks and we can't expect continuing improvements for more than a decade or two. The main theme of my book is the stakes are getting higher because there's a new class of disasters that cascade globally. But of course, the other point, and again, speaking as an astronomer, is that um, the time lying ahead is enormous. Mm. Uh, we know that we are the outcome of nearly four billion years of biological evolution from the first uh, protozoa, as it were, by Darwinian selection. But astronomers know that the Earth's got six billion more years before the sun flares up and dies, the entire universe may go on forever. And to quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, 
especially towards the end. So astronomers would never think of us humans as being the culmination of evolution. We may not even be the halfway st stage because there's more time ahead. Now, of course, it could be that life is unique to the Earth and ineptness this century snuffs out all the potentialities. But on the other hand, um, it's possible that um, evolution will continue in the future um, for billions of years more. And if that happens, evolution is going to happen much faster because it won't be Darwinian selection, which takes hundreds of thousands of years to change one species into another. It will be what I would call secular intelligent design. It'll be us or more intelligent successors who will uh, redesign entities. And this could lead to changes here on Earth and far beyond on timescales of uh, only centuries. So the timeline ahead is longer than the time that's elapsed up till now. And moreover, the pace of change is going to be faster because it's going to be a technological timescale rather than the slow Darwinian timescale. And that means it's utterly hopeless to conceive or attempt to predict what's going to happen in the really far future. But uh, certainly as astronomers, we are aware that there is this far future uh, for uh, our galaxy and our universe whatever happens to us down here on the Earth. I mean, do you think we should just get rid of the notion of linear time altogether? Should we be embracing a more cyclical notion of time? Would this be useful? And basically, an understanding of time that emphasises repetition and is influenced by the cycles that are apparent in the natural world? I mean, at the end of the day, what is wrong with a little bit of creative destruction every now and then if it gives us these new opportunities to find new avenues of exploration? Well, it might, but I mean, in the in, in the long run, if you look over billions of years, uh, of course, the Darwinian evolution um, has, of course, not proceeded smoothly. The uh, dinosaurs could tell you that, yeah. but there has been a gradual emergence of complexity um, over those millions of billions of years. But we are now in a special state when, as I say, future evolution is not going to be Darwinian selection, and so it is going to be up to us how it happens. Um, so uh, I don't think we can sort of recycle things um, in the way that might have happened in the past. Just to hear me out once more on this idea of cyclical time, do you think yes. the cyclical understanding could also be applied to the cosmic scale? I mean, what are your thoughts on the idea that the universe is not just expanding infinitely, but soon it might also contract? In other words, what expands contracts. So we've had the Big Bang, and this may lead to the Big Crunch, and that will lead to potentially another Big Bang. And I, I think that concept is, is better known as loop quantum cosmology. Do you think if it is to be proven that in actual fact maybe this is the way the universe is going to go it's going to be this constant expansion and contraction this this more cyclical process do you think that would spark a Kuperian style revolution when it comes to thinking about the passing of time i don't think so because i mean as you say long-range forecasts are never reliable <laughs> and uh the entire cosmos um there are ideas that it will eventually recollapse to a big crunch uh, the most likely thing is it d does go on expanding forever. But uh, in any case, we are talking there about timescales far longer, millions of times longer than human history. And so not, I think, relevant to the way we think of ourselves as humans. So so I think it's such a big disjunction between the timescales that cosmologists think about and those that uh, even the most far-sighted um, politician or priest thinks that uh, it doesn't really help. Uh, I think we've got to, got to just say we don't know what will happen. 
on that very long time scale. But uh, we do think of ourselves as um, an important stage between 45 million centuries and the of the Earth, and this one is special, and there'll be another 50 million centuries, 60 million centuries before the Earth dies, and, uh, and we don't know what's going to happen in those. Before we do turn to some of the questions that we have from audience, I want to talk about some of the current methods of thinking about tomorrow and how they're hampered by short-term thinking, by polarizing debates, by alarmist rhetoric and by pessimism. And I want to ask you, Martin, why is the public still in so much denial about the harm we're causing both the biosphere and the threats posed by our interconnected world? Well, I think for the for the biosphere, it's a question that they don't think long-term enough. And politicians in particular don't think long-term uh, because they worry about the, the next election. I quote Mr. Jean-Paul Juncker in my book, who says that politicians know what to do. They don't know how to get re-elected if they've done it. And so uh, the, the politicians tend to um, react on short time. But you shouldn't blame them. That's because the public are like that. The public won't vote for them if they don't. And so one thing which I say in my book is that it's very important for scientists any sort of charismatic people who speak for them to make people aware of these things. I mean, the, the, in the 60s, there were people like Rachel Carson and uh, et cetera, who made people care about the environment. Um, and um, we've got people like David Attenborough now. And I think they can make a big difference. And just to give one, one example, in the UK recently, uh, Mr. Michael Gove uh, is not perhaps the most inspirational long-term thinker, but he did, when he was in his previous role, introduce legislation uh, to ban non-reusable plastic straws and things like that. Now, he did that because he thought, probably rightly, that the public and the voters would support it. And the reason that was the case was that millions of them had watched the Attenborough Blue Planet 2 program, particularly the one showing the uh, albatross returning to its nest and coughing up for its young, not the long-form nourishment, but um, bits of plastic. That's an iconic picture, rather like the uh, polar bear and the melting ice flow is for the climate things. And, and so that was an example where a charismatic, inspirational figure like David Attenborough was able to make people think about a long-term issue, which wasn't on their radar at all until two or three years ago. People didn't talk about plastic in the ocean, whereas that's become a serious issue. Uh, the same is happening, but not enough for, for climate change. The campaigns and demonstrations, especially by young people, are to be welcome because they are making people think long term. Scientists themselves can't do it without getting the public on side. And the politicians will only respond if they think the public and voters will support them. And that's why the Pope in 2015 and our secular Pope David Attenborough more recently um, have been so important in uh, raising public consciousness of these long term issues. But the public also has to make an informed decision, don't they? It's one thing to, to appeal to their emotions, but it's another thing to actually educate them on the real science. And how do we enhance both the public and the political discourse over long-term scientific and global trends? Because even if we just look at what happened with COVID-19 and some of the response that the public, especially in the US, has had, it, it often seems like, despite the science, people just follow the route that they want to take. Well, I mean, I think I think that's true, and um, there is widespread uh, ignorance of even basic science. Uh, you don't need to be an expert in science to understand these things, but you need to have a feel for science. Um, but incidentally, I think scientists sometimes complain too much because we should bemoan ignorance 
um, in all areas. I mean, it, it's sad if people don't know the difference between a proton and a protein um, and don't understand uh, um, basic feats of climate or anatomy and or disease and things like that. But it's equally sad if they don't know the history of their country, uh, because that's important if you want to make an informed judgment. Um, so I think uh, we've got to hope that basic knowledge is more widespread. Um, so public debate, which is crucial in a democracy, gets above Daily Mail slogans. And it will only do that if the public has at least some feel for science. But as I say, uh, it's equally important that the public should have some feel for the uh, history of our nation and should be able to find South Korea or uh, Libya on a map, which many can't. I mean, how do we apply that to our thinking about technologies and, and the decisions we make over which technologies we should accelerate and which technologies we should responsibly constrain? Because, again, it feels like the ability to make an informed decision is often hampered by monetary incentives, for example. And those monetary and, and uh, incentives of shareholders of certain technological companies often outweigh the greater good for humanity. So how do we make those sorts of informed decisions when it comes to the application of some of this science? Well, I think we, we do need regulation. I mean, let's, going back to biotech, for instance, we do need regulations on ground of safety and on grounds of, uh, of ethics of cer certain technologies. My worry about that is that uh, there are some technologies that are dangerous and uh, we want regulations globally, but uh, enforcing regulations globally um, in biotech, for instance, is as hopeless as enforcing the drug laws globally or the tax laws globally. And that's why I do worry about the misuse of biotech, etc. Also, we need powerful international bodies which can enforce uh, these regulations and of course in dealing with large multinational conglomerates as we have in the um, the IT arena clearly it's got to be some international regulation of them and we don't yet have that but that's what we need if we want to minimize the uh, risk of uh, really disastrous downsides of the new technology and it's, it is difficult because in the case of nuclear which you talked about earlier Nuclear facilities uh, to make nuclear bombs are large and special purpose, and it's possible for the International Atomic Energy Agency to regulate them. But of course, uh, um, the kind of experiments that could be dangerous or unethical in biology can be done in a small dual purpose lab, of which there are many. So it's harder to enforce regulations in that arena. And similarly, cyber attacks of growing impact uh, can be carried out just by few people even a, a loner. And so I do think we'll have a bumpy ride because it'll be hard to prevent a few people misusing these powerful technologies. And I like to say that the global village will have its village idiots. And they will have a global range. And if we want to cope with that, we have to contend with a tension between three things we want to preserve, liberty, security, and privacy. One of those has to give. In China, it's privacy that's going to give. In the West, it may be something else. But I think if we want to ensure that uh, when the stakes are so high, we bring down to a reasonable low level the probability of some uh, bad actor causing catastrophe, we do have to worry about how we can uh, have adequate surveillance.
Do you think there's a, a methods issue here when it comes to thinking about and trying to predict the future? Now, I should probably just make it very, very clear to our audience that you're an astronomer, not an astrologer. <laughs> Those are two entirely different things, and, and one happens to deal quite a lot with trying to predict the future. Because in the current century, it feels like futurism has become a data based science. We seem to be obsessed with with modelling the present and the past to try and work out what might happen in the future. But what if we end up making false assumptions about our future based on very limited data in both the past and present? Do you think there's an issue here, an underlying issue with our methods for how we try to understand, look at and eventually predict the future? Well, of course, uh, I'm a scientist, not an astrologer, um, and uh, scientists are pretty rotten forecasters. All I'd say is they're not as bad as economists, but they can't be reliable. And uh, even with very good data, then, as you say, one can't make confident forecasts very far ahead. So we, we do have to live with uncertainty and do our best to, to cope with it. And we've got to, um, uh, in my view, explore scenarios for things that might happen, things that might go wrong and prepare against them. And uh, the centre I'm involved in Cambridge, called the Centre for Studying Extreme Risks, uh, is concerned to uh, give more attention to these um, high consequence, low probability uh, threats, which tend to be not studied enough. There's lots of study of risks like carcinogens in food, cutting down road accidents and things of that kind, but not enough to these major events. And we saw in the case of the COVID-19 that um, we weren't adequately prepared. We didn't have the um, adequate equipment to deal with it. Whereas in retrospect, it would have been a reasonable investment, given that no reasonable person would have thought that the probability of such an event was lower than, say, once per 20 years. Talking about exploring the multitude of possible scenarios for the future, do you think science fiction has an important role to play in preparing the public for what could potentially be possible? I think it does. And I tell my students that... Uh, They'll do far better to uh, read first-rate science fiction uh, than second-rate science. It's more fun and no more lights to be wrong. So I think uh, it does nourish the imagination. So, so I certainly recommend that. And uh, when you were talking earlier about cyclic uh, events, um, I was reminded of a book by um, Olaf Stapleton. He was an underappreciated science fiction writer. And he wrote a book called Last and First Men. He wrote his book in the mid-1930s. And it, it's about uh, 15 species of intelligences and brains that emerge and decay over the next few billion years. And he was uh, very imaginative and we all know Arthur C. Clarke and um, Stapleton wrote another book called Starmaker, which is a the Starmaker is a creative universes. And he had the idea of a multiverse and uh, different dimensions and all that. So that's a long way of saying that I think it, it's very inspiring to read some science fiction. In fact, I always recommend a book by two people uh, I knew called Stuart and Cohen, called Aliens, which gives a digest of about 50 science fiction novels, because science fiction is not always the most excellent literature, but it's lo lovely to have the digest of the ideas in it. And this particular book digested the ideas of about 50 books, and we should do that. But uh, that's a long way of saying that science fiction writers have a lot to, to teach us and to uh, nourish our imagination. Do you think we'll ever see a uh, Lord Martin Rees science fiction book? I don't think I've got the imagination, actually. I mean, I'm uh, going to write uh, books about science and um, the future of the inanimate universe. 
And I like to say that um, inanimate world of uh, atoms and stars and galaxies is simple compared to the biological world. And even insect is far more complicated with its layer upon layer of structure than a star or a galaxy. Um, so I will stick to uh, simple things, the inanimate world, um, but I will enjoy reading books by people with more imagination than I can possess. Well, if you'll indulge me just for a second, you mention in the book very briefly possible ways we might overcome the extinction level event or how we might actually recover from the extinction level event. And you point at what James Lovelock has been talking about, which is this idea of a handbook for survival. So what would you include in a James Lovelock-esque handbook for the survival of humanity after the extinction event? Well, of course, um Going back to what I said about um, our lack of education in the basic science, I think we'd all be completely helpless in even simple agriculture because uh, uh, we are further from nature than any early generation was. So what I think I would do is make sure that everyone in school learns a bit more about uh, how to grow food, basic human anatomy and things like that, uh, which they will need. And um, Lovelock had this idea of uh, having this handbook and uh, distributing robust copies all around the world, so it existed. And I could plug another book by Lewis Darkwell called The Knowledge, uh, which, again, I put in my book. And he, he uh, summarized the kind of things we would need to know, going up to smelting iron and things like that, if we were to uh, revert to a, a sort of Stone Age culture and have to start again from there. Well, we have a question from uh, YouTube about education, actually, from Ava Pascoe of, of Cyber Salon, who asks, should we be teaching astronomy and perspectives on long-term thinking in schools? I think we should be teaching basic astronomy. I think it's sad if people don't understand what causes the, uh, the tides or what the sun is made of and things like that. But I think people ought to understand history. Our civilization is the outcome of an imprint that goes back for thousands of years. Um, and also, uh, they should understand the, the natural world. And I think what is very sad is that young people are more cut off from the natural world than ever before. And incidentally, I, I gave a talk at a science festival recently where I made the point that the fact that the technology that young people use today is so elaborate is itself an impediment to getting them keen on science. Because when I was young, you could uh, take apart a motorbike engine or simple radio, something like that, and put it together again and understand how it works. Uh, whereas the uh, gadgets that young people use now, smartphones and things like that, you can't possibly understand how they work. And if you take them apart, you can't put them together again. Um, so I think if you look at the careers of most people of early generations who ended up being science engineers, they were sort of tinkerers when they were young. And going right back to Newton, who made uh, models of windmills and clocks, the high tech of his time. And, and also biologists looked at bird nests and things like that. And young people now can't understand the technology their everyday life depends on. And they've probably never seen a bird bird's nest in many cases. And I think it's rather sad that uh, education doesn't give people the opportunity to engage with the natural world now. And of course, if they did, then they might value it more and uh, think longer term. 
As expected, we've had questions from our YouTube audience, specifically on uh, space. And uh, I guess I would certainly be remiss if I didn't ask you about space. And, and one of those questions is from Lisa Pettibone, who asks, could a settlement on the moon help us develop innovative solutions to our problems here on Earth and be a stepping stone to living and traveling in space? Well, the answer is it, it could be a stepping stone. But uh, as I say, I'm a I'm not enthusiastic about massive um, evacuation of the Earth to live in space because we're not suited to it. We should realize that um, as robots and miniaturization get better, the practical need for people in space, even to uh, do mining or build large structures on the moon, is uh, getting weaker. As an astronomer, I hope there will be um, a big radio telescope on the far side of the moon where there's no radio background from the Earth. That could be assembled by by robots. And so I, I think we can make use of space for technology, but um, we can also do industry in space. And we can have huge telescopes um, in, in space, gossamer thin, built under zero G. And I hope that we will use these to uh, get a really detailed image of distant parts of the universe. And just to uh, mention one thing, one of the most exciting things in astronomy in the last 20 years has been realizing that most of the other stars in the sky are orbited by residues of planets, just like the Earth is orbited by the familiar planets. We can only detect these as little points. We can't image one of them. Um, but uh, if we had a huge telescope in space, we could perhaps get an image of another Earth, maybe with a biosphere, orbiting another star. That's a big challenge. It needs a really big telescope. I say in my book that this is a challenge to achieve by the year 2068. Why do I say 2068? That's a centenary of the famous Earthrise picture showing the Earth as viewed by astronauts orbiting the moon, which was iconic among environmentalists. And let's hope that uh, sometime, maybe a century later, we will have an image of another Earth uh, orbiting another sun. We have a telescope that's due to go up very soon, I think as, as soon as 2021, which is the James Webb Telescope. Well, what do you hope that the James Webb Telescope might discover? Well, it won't do that. It will, it will do a lot more. It will be able to uh, analyse the light from distant, very distant objects and therefore look back far into the past. Even better than that is going to be a, a telescope on the ground built by uh, a European consortium, which Britain belongs to, which is um, uh, a telescope being built in Chile with a mirror 39 meters across. It's a mosaic of 800 bits of glass. Um, and um, it's got the name, the ELT, Extremely Large Telescope. The Europeans aren't very imaginative in their nomenclature. But anyway, that telescope should be able to um, analyze the light from planets around other stars. It's a challenge because you're looking for a far-flying extra searchlight, as it were. You're looking at another star, which is like the sun, um, and you're looking at planets which is fainter to it by the same factor that the Earth is fainter than the Sun. So you need a big telescope. But when we have this telescope, it'll be possible to perhaps learn whether there's oxygen or chlorophyll or things like that on some of the planets orbiting other, other stars. The James Webb telescope will be a step towards that, but uh, the big ones on the ground will be more important. I had a special request from an audience member, Ben Greenaway, who, who wanted me to ask you about your opinion on both Donald Trump's idea of a space force and Elon Musk's distracting array of Starlink satellites. So I just wanted your opinion on both of those things. Well, well, I mean, I think one more is about the both. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump's motivation is to 
emphasize the uh, use of uh, space as an arena for war, uh, not only to launch weapons from uh, and also to attack other satellites. So I think any expansion of that effort is something we should deplore. Uh, the Musk uh, system uh, of having thousands of, of satellites, the intention is good, it's to bring internet to Africa and other places where they don't have, have broadband internet. So that's the motive. But of course, the downside is that um, uh, these objects will be in a fairly low orbit and um, they will be a bit of a distraction to astronomers. The good thing I would say is that um, the people at SpaceX, they're mindful of these concerns. They're trying to avoid these small spacecraft having shiny surfaces, etc. But still, um, they will be uh, a bit of an impediment to observations, but just after sunset and before sunrise, because they're in low Earth orbits. So uh, there's no sun shining on them in the middle of the night. If, say, in the next 10 to 20 years, we finally crack commercial spaceflight and it becomes viable, would you, yourself, would you consider going to space? Well, imagine that uh, Elon Musk has said that he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. And he's 49 <laughs> years old now, so he, he might make it. I think I'd want to be even more old and decayed before I took the risk. And I say that because I personally think that uh, there'll never be a case for Europe or America funding massive space exploits. Because as I say, robots can do everything better and much more cheaply. If the government does something, it's got to have very high safety standards. To indicate that, the shuttle NASA had was launched 135 times. It had two spectacular failures. Each of those was a natural trauma. But that was a less than 2% failure rate, which is fine for most test pilots or astronauts and uh, uh, adventurers. So. My view is that manned spaceflight should be left to the private sector, which means uh, Musk and Bezos and people like that, because they can launch adventurers prepared to accept high risks, and they can uh, uh, therefore have cut price uh, risky ventures, and we can cheer them on. I don't think I would go myself. Well, we have one last question from YouTube, um, and it's a two-part question, really. It's from Ava Pascoe, who asks, uh, what inspired you or who inspired you to study astronomy? And what are the big unanswered questions left in astronomy that uh, you think are a priority to answer? Well, as you say, my, my own path into it was, uh, was an accident. I was uh, good at uh, maths at school and bad at languages, so I specialised in, in, in maths in my last years and uh, studied it in universities and undergraduate. I rather wish I'd studied science. Instead, I'd done better if I'd done more science. And then by lucky accidents, I got into astronomy to do a PhD. And this was the mid-60s, a very good time, because that's when subject was opening up the first evidence for black holes, first evidence for Big Bang, and things like that. And I advise uh, young people uh, listening now, um, if you are thinking about going into science, Pick a subject where new things are happening, where you can get new data, use new techniques or more powerful computers, and then you can tackle the problems that the old guys never got a chance to tackle. If you go into a more slowly developing subject, then you have to do the things that the old guys got stuck on, and that's uh, uh, less likely to lead to success. Uh, but the good thing I would say is that although the 60s were an exciting time, the most recent five years, have been just as exciting. We had a, a very exciting developments in uh, planetary and other stars, which I mentioned, more evidence on the Big Bang um, and more on dark matter, etc. So I would say that the subjects developed very fast. And 
as in all of science, as the frontiers advance, then old questions get settled and new questions come into view, which couldn't have been posed beforehand. So, and the periphery gets longer, so there's more and more to do. So it's a great subject and it now links together with geology and biology, if we think about exoplanets. So that's, that's a long answer to say that uh, I got into astronomy just by a chain of accidents. And uh, I've been lucky that it's been a subject which um, uh, has developed. And also it's a subject which has a, a wide uh, attraction to the public and also an unambiguously positive image. I mean, people are slightly ambig ambivalent about nuclear science and genetics, because it can be used for good or ill. But uh, I think if you do um, astronomy or evolution of biology, then I think the public is uh, is surprisingly interested. Um, and uh, um, I'm always gratified that uh, the public is interested in these subjects. The question that I'm most often asked, we haven't got round to in this uh, conversation, is, is there life out there already? That's what really grabs people's interest. Um, but that's indeed a very important question. It feels like we're understanding more and more about the world through science and, and about just the nature of reality itself. But uh, there are some challenges that come with imagining the unimaginable. And part of that is a built-in human limit to our understanding. Do you think there's some things that we will just never know because they're beyond the power of the human mind to grasp? Or will these concepts eventually be grasped by things like artificial intelligence, for example? Well, I, I'm sure there are things that, are, that we're unaware of, which may be far too hard for us to grasp. I mean, just like a, a monkey can't understand quantum theory, so there may be things that we can never grasp. You ask about AI. I mean, I, I think there's a bit too much hype about what AI can do, but it can certainly do very complicated calculations and uh, do them very fast. If you think of uh, understanding, say, string theory, which involves geometry in 10 or 11 dimensions, and which may help us to understand the very early stages of the Big Bang, I can certainly conceive that there may be a possibility that a machine, a beefed up version of the deep mind machine that uh, beat the world champion at the game of Go, which might be able to understand, uh, or not understand, but at least calculate 11-dimensional geometry and explore the consequences of string theory in a way that's just too difficult or too long for a human to do and if the machine then spews out at the end the correct mass for a proton or correct strength of gravity etc we'd know that there was something in the theory you wouldn't have this sort of aha insight which is the main um, uh, bonus you get if you make a scientific discovery because we wouldn't have the insight but we would at least know through this uh, idea aided by a machine whether a particular string theory was correct. So there may be some things which are even too hard for the machine. I, I keep arguing that the next Einstein will be an A-Einstein, um, but... Uh, well, I don't think so, because I think the, uh, uh, the ideas will still, I think, come from, come from humans, whereas the machines have the advantage of speed and processing power, so they can do things uh, far faster than us. I mean, the, uh, the computer that uh, beat the world champion Go it learned in three hours just to give the rules by playing against itself and became better than any, any human. Uh, so that's the kind of success they have. But um, the thing that machines can't learn is um, common sense and about humans, because they can only do that by watching real humans in real situations. And the problem is twofold. The first is that uh, we don't have such good sensors. They, uh, they, they can't sense the world as well as we do. But secondly, everything that we do 
is very slow by the sound of a machine. So you can't give the machine a data set of real human beings. It's like us watching trees grow. Uh, you can't learn very much just in a uh, in a lifetime. And so that's why there's a big concern about the extent to which machines will ever sort of acquire common sense. And that's relevant to how much we should be prepared to delegate routine uh, choices to machines without being sure that there are humans in the loop. So Martin, you do, you do such a wonderful job in this book of balancing your optimism with your anxiety, with balancing speculation and science. But for our audience, how do they and how do we all become evangelists for new technologies without looking blissfully naive and looking too, uh, too techno-optimist? How do we do that ourselves? What is your message for our audience? Well, I think we, we do need to be cautious in the, in the way we apply these powerful technologies. I mean, that's certainly the theme of my book. But uh, on the other hand, we want to make sure that we, we, we develop these technologies. Obviously, they have huge benefits for, for health um, and also for um, monitoring complex systems uh, like um, electricity grids, because we want to monitor by AI and traffic flows, etc. And um, uh, the Chinese could have a planned economy of a kind that Mars could only dream of because they can uh, register and process every transaction made in the entire country. Uh, so there are things which machines can do, but uh, there are also downsides uh, to what they what they can do. Um, and I think um, the main point is that people shouldn't be too starry-eyed about science, and they should, without being experts, obviously, have enough feel for what science can and cannot do. Only then can we have a sort of informed debate, which we should be having in democracy, about how to deploy these new techniques. And on that very level-headed end note, Lord Martin Rees, I just want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you to Martin for sharing his thoughts on the challenges that humanity faces in the near future. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, available now. And don't forget, you can watch the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net, where you can also find out about all of our upcoming live stream events. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.